and welcome to episode 74 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about the uh, 20th episode, um, second, the first story of it. Uh, originally uh, screened on February the 16th, 1972. A teleplay by Jack Laird, uh, based on a short story by Rennie Morris and directed by Jan- Daniel Haller. Um, and it basically, this is a story that lives up to its title, the fact that I'll never leave you, ever. Good evening. If you seem to sense an aura of cold dampness that permeates this room, attribute it not to either defective air conditioning or inclement indoor weather. It's simply because this is rather a special place, with a special statuary and special paintings, and they carry with them a coldness that seems to go best in a crypt or in a place like this, called the Night Gallery. Our opening kickoff is deep into the end zone of the moors, where hounds bay and witches fly brooms, and the belief in the supernatural is as natural as breathing, or not breathing. We call this item, I'll Never Leave You, Ever. Our story begins on a desolate and foggy night. Um, Morag, who's played by Lois Nettleton, is meeting her lover, a man called Lanto, played by the great John Saxon. Morag and Lanto have an insatiable lust, and they meet to um, and they meet in a in a barn to uh, quench their thirst for passion. The problem with their love is the fact that Morag has a husband, a man called Owen, played by Royal Dano. Owen is dying, and he is seemingly clinging on to life, um, mainly for the adoration of his wife. Morag is sick of his, his the fact he's still alive and wants to live with Lanto, and also the fact that even his touch now turns her stomach. She can't cope with this sick man putting her hands on her, and it's the only thing he's now able to do is just to touch her. Mora goes to see a witch, and the witch says, I will help you in this matter. I will give you a voodoo doll, but this doll is a serious issue, and I want something in return. In this case, a couple of spring lambs. But at this stage, Morag doesn't realise that it won't even reach the point where she has to complete the transaction. well known in these parts. You want a doll? Yes. What do you offer for my services? Mayo, and your price, old woman? Two 
poor spring lambs. But if I do not receive them, things will not go well for you. You understand? Morag heads back to the house and lights the stove. There is fire there and it's, the fire starts to, to build. She can hear her husband Owen in the other room and decides now is the time to make him move and to kill him. She grabs the dot, throws it into the fire, but to her horror realises what's happened. The voodoo doll has not been treated. It is not dry and will not burn properly. The doll is unfortunately quite violently just smouldering and in the other room the horror of what she's done becomes apparent. She does not look but hears the screams of Owen and yet still this voodoo doll will not burn properly. She panics. Desperate to try and get it she sees the doll's feet curl and hands reach out as it masks Owen's own screams and panic. This doll, which before she put it in the fire had moved, is mimicking the movements of her dying husband. And she freaks. The doll flips out the fire and smoulders. She goes to check on her husband and screams in horror at the sight that beholds her. The man she loved is now a blackened mess. Out of the bed, which obviously was the reason why the doll had flipped out of the fire, he still, he still breathes. She panics, worried and terrified about the horrible action she's now done. She grabs the doll, rushes to a pit in the woods and throws it in. She then sets a light for Lanto to come and see her. He arrives, sees her in a state. She's, she'd already collapsed at this stage, unconscious by the horrors that she'd seen. He wakes her. She tries to explain what's happened. But while she tries to explain, he then goes to look and sees the mess that's in the bedroom. He also panics, states that he can't believe that she's at what she's done is to go to a witch to end the man's life sooner rather than letting nature take its course. He panics and sprints out into the woods to try and find the doll, stating that this doll is still dangerous. They are not safe until it has been destroyed. She heads out after him and in the, the gloom and the fog of the night she hears a voice calling her. She heads out towards the edge of the pit partly in hope and partly in panic. She seems euphoric but the ground gives up below her and she plunges to her death. That death is into the waiting arms of her husband, charred and blackened and blistered from the fire that the voodoo doll had given him. And he states, in his un almost undead state, that he will never leave her, ever. <laughs> Here. 
I've done that story very quickly um, and I've done it very quickly because it's a very simple tale um, the story itself is actually quite lengthy it's 26 minutes and the reason for that is because a lot of it is in this moment when she's burning the, the doll and the panic and the fear and the worry it's not something you can explain as much it's very much that classic cabin in the woods feel there's somebody going out of their mind and isolated in all this horror it is, um, it's a proper horror story. It's, it's actually very grim. It's one of the, the few times that Laird writes a tale that is, um, that focuses so much on the blackness and grimness of life. It's a proper horror story. Um, a lot of the time, almost entirely, he always focuses on black humour rather than grim, dark tales. And this is a time which stands out as something slightly different. Only interesting thing about that is, of course, that a lot of his stories always focus on uh, the, uh, the relationship between husband and wife of family. And in this case, it's no different. But rather than making a joke about a woman trying to offer a husband or a husband trying to offer his wife, offer wife that he's done so many times before. In, in fact, we mentioned it only a couple of weeks ago in Stop Killing Me. In this case, he tries to do something that is far more thoughtful, but also far, far grimmer. It is, as I've said before, a cabin in the woods horror. And interestingly enough, he uses an unusual director for this one, Daniel Haller. Now, Dan Haller was uh, known for doing uh, a couple of cinematic feature uh, adaptations of Lovecraft, obviously, as we said before, a, uh, a very great interest by um, by our man Laird. He did uh, the Dunwich Horror and Die Monster Die, both of which are not great. They have their problems, but also do have some strong points as well. Um, Joe Alves uh, creates a great set, and again, much like as we were talking about before with... Um, uh, with deliveries in the rear, there's a lot of there's a lot of fog, there's a lot of uh, atmosphere, a grimness to the tale, heavy in its in its in its tone, uh, lots of greys and, and and shadow. In this case, he used the, the set for uh, Sins of the Father, which was actually recorded before this episode, but screens in another in well in the next episode we're going to talk about uh, in in a few weeks' time. Um. And it's used to great, great impact. There's also some great shots in there as well. Haller does really well with what he's got. It feels, interestingly, I think for me personally, it looked like a, an impact on like Evil Dead style and that kind of, again, this cabin in the woods. But also the, um, the scene at the end where uh, Morag plunges to a death uh, is actually filmed in the same way with Evil Dead, with the with the... The entity flying through the woods which was done on a plank of wood and two men running 
This was done on a motorcycle and the camera facing the floor to give an impact of someone plunging downwards. Uh, it's, it's successful to a point, it shows depth and speed, but it does feel, I think, like she's going down a like a sharp incline rather than like plunging straight down into a pit into the arms of her undead husband. There's, um, they also use a reverse crash zoom shot as well, so as if she's plunging towards the, the, the body of her husband as well, and I think that's an interesting kind of feel. It's used a lot in horror films, and in this case, it, it, it works really well. Um, the actors, I would say, really work with this as well. Um, John Saxton's Lanto has uh, an unusual accent, I think it's fair to say, but he's, uh, he's suitably dashing, but when he sees the horror, he acts like you would imagine. Uh, Owen, uh, played by Roald Dano, is interesting enough. He doesn't play it brilliantly, but he, he does enough of a job to kind of drag you in through the story, and you can understand him as a weak man, but also a spirited man. But it's Lois Nettleton's uh, Morag which really stands out for me. Um, a lot of the scenes uh, rely on her basically reacting in fear and horror about what's happening. And she does it with a great deal of skill and aplomb. Um, that, as I was saying, that scene where she's basically um, dashing between the fire and her husband, the screams and the madness her own panic and fear about exactly what's happening in front of her is solidly done. Very, very solidly done, in fact. It's, it's, it's wonderfully placed. Also, the, um, the general tone and the writing is very interesting. Laird basically takes Rennie Morris's um, story and, and regurgitates it, recites it. He understands why it works and what's good about it. And he, he focuses on that, certainly. And that's what makes it a very powerful tale. This uh, mounting horror. Um, the fact it's made for TV as well really helps, I think. You, you know, these days you would see um, smoke and flames. And, um, you know, uh, if it would be made a feature, you might have seen more extreme horror with... The burning of the body but it's all in the mind and in fact it's in, in it, more so it's in the mind of Morag so it's very much her journey which keeps it grounded and focused and nasty and I think that really helps in its telling um, there is a story that goes with this uh, problems on set we'll say problems far more serious than that really John Saxon who's had did CPR training and on the set he was called back from lunch. He says, My stand-in came rushing in over to me and asked me to come. Something rather urgent. One of the craft servicemen who put out the coffee and donuts had fallen down and was obviously having something of like a heart attack. There was nobody around. I was one of the first person returning from lunch. On the bold ones, I had practiced this cardio resuscitation by massaging the heart and I began very rapidly and very, very rigorously to do this. Shortly, other people began returning and they called me, called the nurse and the fire department. The nurse showed up some four or five minutes later. I was still massaging the guy's chest and he looked like he was get, gaining a little colour. The nurse said to me that I was doing it too hard and I'd break his ribs. 
I said, you do it then. And she did. And he died. Obviously, that's very grim and very sad. Um, and I think, like a lot of these things, if you do a project over a large period of time, people will become ill and they will die. And I think this is a, one of those circumstances and it's not worth reading much more into it than that. But it does show how, obviously with all big projects, they're always tinged with a bit of sadness. And uh, certainly in this case, that is true. Although it does add to the fact that my own personal opinion that John Saxon is absolutely a legend. It irks out. Um, so, it's a frightening tale, I would say. A dark tale. And it is made so because of the strength of the story, the power of the direction, the strength of the scripts in terms of the words that are said, and also this grim, dark touch. It's one of the moments where Jack Laird's skills really shine forth. He, he's obviously a fantastic talent when it comes to sometimes making other things, you know, the classic executive producer as he was, of taking something by somebody else, tweaking it, making it powerful and strong, and showing it to other people. It is indeed a very chilling tale. The doll has not burned away then? No. Where is it now? I threw it into the quarry. Do you see it's all right? Look, you, you don't understand. It's not safe until it has burned away. The doll still lives down there in the darkness. Oh. I must go and find it. Okay, housekeeping, very, very quickly. You can get us at the website, www.twilightzonenetwork.com. There are links there to our Facebook, to our Twitter. There are all the articles that we put out, Suspense, uh, X-1, which we're into, Twilight Zone uh, podcast. And also, obviously, all the other episodes of this podcast, too. We're on iTunes. We're on all the podcatchers. So we're there for you, if you however you want to take us. Um, if you want to get hold of me personally, my email is chris at thetwilightzonenetwork.com. But not only that, you can also get me on my Twitter, my private Twitter, so it's a bit random. It's at orange underscore monkey. Say hello, and I will always say hello back. And it's uh, great, the people that come to me and say hello. And it's lovely that people are listening to the podcast and liking it and giving an opinion on what they enjoy and what they don't enjoy about it. Next week is another tale. Uh, is uh, about black magic again darkness fear and an interesting story it's there aren't any more mcbains as i said last week we're in a real purple patch at the moment and uh hopefully you're enjoying it as much as i am so until then take care and i'll speak to you soon goodbye (laughs) 